It's good to uh, be with you uh, yet again, and uh, it's a great facility we have here. I hope they enjoy it outside. <laughs> They're probably glad to be out there rather than in here, I suspect. Uh, we're actually kind of, uh, we were in the Gospel of John and working our way through it, and uh, we paused for the Christmas season. We're going to pick it up this time. Uh, and next week, we're going to leave it one more time as we uh, deal with some of the things that are ahead of us as a church and the potential move that uh, we're all aspiring to. So this week, we're back in John, and two weeks, we'll continue in John. But uh, anyway, uh, familiar passage. The subject that we're looking at today is uh, heaven itself. In order to get there, you've got to die. Uh, unless uh, the Lord should come back during uh, our generation still here on earth. You know, one of the characteristics of modern culture today is the denial of death. It doesn't mean that we deny the reality of it. It just simply means that we live in such a way as though it will never come. You know, one of the things that I've done in the midst of uh, uh, the mission ministry that I'm a part of, I've traveled a lot over to Asia. And among the countries there would be the country of Japan. And uh, working with university students in a discipleship manner and so forth. But uh, I've actually read and been told by a physician in Japan that uh, Japan physicians, Japanese physicians, rarely level with terminal patients and uh, terminal patients rarely ask. And the common explanation is this. In Japan, we don't believe in the afterlife, and therefore death is hard to accept, and therefore we just keep quiet. Now, we've uh, experienced a, a similar struggle in the United States, but we react a little bit differently than that, it, they do in Japan. In, J in J Japan... The Japanese deny death, I should say, by ignoring their doctors. Uh, Americans deny death by suing their doctors. <laughs> you know, disease and death aren't supposed to happen to me, and if it happens to me, then somebody really, really goofed up, so I think I'll blame it on my physician. Uh, I bet you, we have, with the number of doctors that we have in this room, I, I bet all of you have malpractice insurance, just in case somebody like me might show up or something like that. <laughs> but uh, here in Southern California, you know, we even hate the idea of looking old. You know, after all, we live in Orange County, and this is really the low-fat yogurt capital of the United States here. Uh, what secularism tries to do is help people cope with death by saying that death is natural. Now, I have a book in my library that's been there for, a, you know, a few decades now. It's uh, by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. And she has a, a very definitive text in the idea of it entitled Death and Dying. And she talks about the emotional stages that we encounter in the face of death. We move from denial to anger 
and finally to acceptance. And then she said this, the moment of death is neither frightening nor painful. It's peaceful cessation. Now that sounds reassuring, but to me, to me specifically, it's nonsense. Every human heart knows that death is alienating, alien, and it's radically traumatic. And why do we have this massive cover-up? Ernest Becker wrote another book entitled The Denial of Death. And he says the reason we ignore death is because we don't want to admit that we're not in control. We feel life is meaningful only when we have freedom of choices. And so we dedicate large chunks of time to keep our options open. And the reason we get stymied with death is because death doesn't negotiate. Now, my question this morning is this. What are you doing to prepare for this? Uh, You know, it's the one thing that's absolutely certain. You know, we have health insurance in case we get sick. We have auto insurance in case we have an accident. We have homeowner's insurance in case we have a fire. We have, in many cases, long-term health care insurance in case we outlive our health. Uh, So we're very obsessive about being prepared for what might not happen. You know, but we, are we prepared for the one thing that will happen, and that is death itself? In our verses today, Jesus... uh, kind of mitigates our fear of death by reminding us of the hope that we have as believers in heaven. Now, what I've done in your bulletin outline is I've listed four facts about heaven. And uh, as you might well respect, or expect, I'm going to comment on each one of those, okay? So let's begin. Uh, First, in heaven, we find the home that we've always wanted. In verse 3, Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. Now, having a place is essential for all of us to have any kind of emotional health. We need a place where people will smile and greet us. We need a home. Now, no secret to you, we live in a very ethnically diverse community here. You know, on any given summer night, you can take a walk around either lake in Woodbridge and hear four or five different languages that uh, are being, you know, being used in that particular walk. And uh, I've been told that foreign-born Americans uh, spend up to $2 billion a year going back to their home, going back to the place where they were raised, going back to the place where their relatives are, Many of you have done that kind of a thing. It just happens all of the time. And it just reminds us that roots are incredibly important. And the great judgment on Adam and Eve, remember that, was homelessness. They were exiled from the Garden of Eden when they ate the forbidden fruit. Now, many of us live, not many of us, but many, live angry lives because they don't have the memory of a good home. It wasn't a place of acceptance. It wasn't a place of love. And as a result, their relational attachment apparatus has been damaged. 
Now, in verse 2, Jesus reminds us that the place that we really long for, particularly as believers, especially as believers, is we long for the Father's house. And in verse 4, Jesus says, you know, you know about that place. In verse 5, Doubting Thomas says, oh, no, we don't. In verse 6, Jesus says, oh, yes, you do. Now, most of the time, you know, when you look at the three-year time that Jesus spent with his disciples before he went to the cross, he talks to his disciples and says, you think you know, but you don't. But in this case, Jesus says, you think you don't know, but you really do. Now, the home, really, for which we're looking is our heavenly home. You know, the homes that we have down here, some big, some small, some remote, some crowded in, and so forth, is just kind of a, a way station. It's uh, not really the house that we're, we're looking at, you know, and, and uh, the reason for that is because Jesus says, you've got me. You've got me because you have a heavenly home. You know, when you fall in love... Uh, when you get that great career advancement, when you get the dream host, when you dream house, when you uh, get that special vacation, you say, "Now I feel a sense of arrival, sense of completion. I got to do something that I've always wanted to do." And yet, in most cases. When you finally get the prize, your heart often yearns for something that's more. And then you realize that you have a longing that no career, no house, no vacation, no lover can completely fulfill. You see, until we recognize that our primary longing is for the Father's house, we're going to continue to chase feathers in the wind. Now, there are wonderful ends, if you please, along the journey, along the path of this life here on earth. We find refreshment, we find love, no question. But God will never let us mistake it for home. Now, C.S. Lewis says it well, and I quoted this uh, not too long ago, three or four or five weeks ago. It's worth doing it again, and listen to what he says. He says, creatures are not filled with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, so there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, so there's such a thing as water. A man feels sexual desire, so there's such a thing as sex. But if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the only probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, if no earthly pleasure can satisfy the deepest longings of your heart, it doesn't mean that the earth is a fraud. It just simply means that the pleasures that God has provided for us on this earth don't satisfy our deepest longings. They only arouse them. Uh, They're way stations along the way that point to the real thing. Heaven is our real home, and it's important that we keep that in mind because we're going to pick up a lot of adversity and a lot of scars as we 
traverse our way through this earth. Uh, Second, in heaven, we will reveal the splendor of Christ. And this is really significant. You know, the chief end of man, if you please, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And it's part of the the statement of our own fellowship here of glorifying God. Uh, That's what we'll be doing. And particularly when we arrive in heaven, we will revel in the splendor of Christ in a way that we could have never imagined even here on earth. And Jesus says this in John 14, verse 3. We just read it. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. A little bit later in the Gospel of John, he says in chapter 17, that high priestly prayer, when he realizes that he's going to the cross the next day, he says, Father, I desire that the people whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is in John 17, the high priestly prayer of Christ. It's one of the most edifying passages in all of the Bible. We all ought to read it pretty regularly. But the Son, you see, is very glorious in his own right because he's a member of the triune God. But during his incarnation... His glorious nature was absolutely disguised in his own humanity. The people didn't see it. They treated Jesus as if he was one of them, just simply a man. But there was one time on earth that Jesus' glory shone. Do you remember what it was? Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? where Jesus stood, pulled back his flesh, and revealed his glory. Peter, James, and John were there to witness it among the disciples. They were part of the inner circle. And, And then Peter looks at that thing, and then he makes the understatement of the the most understatement in all of the world. He said, Lord, it's a good thing that we're here during that time. I I read that, and I said, you really think that it was? You know, Jesus revealing his glory, and and you're there. So Jesus wants to stand with you and me on ground zero so that the perfect love of the Father would fall on you and me as well. Now, listen to the words of John Milton, Paradise Lost. That's a wonderful poem, if you can get through it. The, the, the brightness of God's presence is so intense that a cloud is drawn like a veil around the central blaze. But because the blinding dazzle still escapes the edges of the cloud, seraphim, the seraphim must cover their eyes as they approach his presence. Now, Milton understood something of the splendor of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all the love that we've ever known, all the warmth that we've ever experienced is collected, it's distilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if the Queen of Sheba can go and visit Solomon and testify 
Blessed are you, Solomon, who stand before the face and taste. Blessed are those, Solomon, who stand with you before and taste your wisdom. Now, if that's true, what must it be like to stand before the face of God and drink in his glory? You know, the Bible just uses words, but it doesn't fully describe what it's going to be like ultimately when we get there. You know, we live in comfortable homes. We live in a beautiful area. But in reality, don't get so used to it because it's a dump compared to where we're going to be ultimately. Uh, Daniel chapter 3 says, we are going to shine like the stars. You know, right now, we are simply vegetables compared to what we're going to be. Now, the third thought here, in heaven, we're going to realize the beauty of our humanity. Now, in Tolkien's work, there's a place where the hero dies, and it says when he dies, it says that the grace of his youth, the valor of his manhood, and the wisdom and majesty of his old age will come together, and it will be a thing of splendor. See, in this world, we're not able to blend all of the strengths together at any one stage of life. Uh, We have to take them as they come. You know, I honestly wish, you know, I see all of the young people around here, I wish I had the strength that I had when I was a young person, but I don't relish the foolishness that I had during that time either, you know? That's the, the kind of way things work, you know? We lose the strength at one stage of life in order to gain the strength of the next stage of life, only in heaven. Will they all be together, just blended together and enjoy them all? You know, we're always wishing in many respects that life on earth could be just a little bit different. We've all got complaints about, you know, who we are, what we look like, you know, the spouse we have, the kids that are unruly once in a while, and all of this other stuff. We can complain about that. But uh, we oftentimes... uh, You know, wish that we said, you know, if only my beauty didn't fade. If only the energy of youth could be experienced with the wisdom of age. If only our bodies wouldn't be destroyed by cancers. If only our wills wouldn't be broken by addiction. If only our emotions wouldn't be poisoned by perversions. You see, if our if-onlys were satisfied, then life would be heavenly. If only we could experience the positives of earthly life without the negatives. You know, do you know who, or do you know what keeps us really from experiencing the positive of earthly without the negatives? Sin and time. And both human sin and the dominion of time will be swept away in heaven. So hell is complete separation from God, and we've kind of mentioned a few details about this before, but in hell, the beauty of our humanity just simply melts away. It will be no more. We no longer will be able to love, to create, to enjoy relationship. There'll be plenty of people there. There'll be plenty of company, but nobody will be able to really commune with one another simply because that is a gift of the glory of God and it doesn't belong in hell. 
all kinds of people there, but no possibility of any kind of relationship. We are totally alone. We will matter to no one whatsoever. And we, in fact, will become utterly inconsequential. And it's simply just what being out of the presence of God really is. You see, people nowadays are only partially separated from God, but full separation from God is absolutely horrendous. And the way in which it's most horrendous is relationally because it's impossible because God is the relational being that created us in his image. You know, heaven, uh, heaven is, of course, is just the opposite. It's a place of complete union with our Lord. And our humanity in heaven will be cleansed. And the image of God that is in us here on earth that's often disguised will explode in majestic glory. And our capacity to love will explode in brilliance. Uh, you're going to look like you, but you're going to look like you a whole lot better. <laughs> it's wonderful. Uh, fourth, in heaven we'll rejoice in the glory of one another. First uh, John 3, 2, one of my favorite scriptures, it says this. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it hasn't yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when Christ appears, we will be like Christ because we will see him as he is. You know, the late Jim Boyce, who is a fabulous author, fabulous preacher, 10th Presbyterian Church, he says, he talks about that verse he says, we will, when Christ appears, we will see him, and we will, we will know him, we will see him as he is. And he says, you know, we're very tempted to read that in the first person singular. I will see Christ. I will be like Christ. And boy said, don't make that mistake. He says, read it as the first person plural. It says, we will see Christ, and we will be like Christ. We will relate to one another, not as we do now, but as we were designed to. All of the sin, all of the insecurities that mar all of our relationships now, it'll all be done away, and every relationship will be open, honest, affirming, and transparent. People will see to the bottom of your life and you will see to the bottom of their life. And it, you'll not just accept what you see. You will, in fact, rejoice in what you see in other people. It's a wonderful experience. You know, the best we can hope for today is to be partially known and then tolerated, maybe accepted, or maybe by a few imperfectly loved. Heaven ramps it up to another level. It's perfect love and unity, and it will bind our hearts to our heavenly bridegroom. Uh, you know, it's at that particular, you know, we are the bride of Christ. Men and women, we are the bride of Christ. And at, it's at the, that particular time where every man will know what a woman goes through on the day of her marriage. 
You know, she might be sitting there thinking as she's looking at herself in the mirror and say, you know what? I am loved and honored and understood and embraced by the one man in all of the world that absolutely uh, cares for me above everybody else. And furthermore, this man is going to be united to me in such a way that all that he is and all that he has comes to me and becomes mine. And more even than that is that all of the best friends that I have in the world are witnessing what is taking place at my wedding, and their cup of joy is being filled by my goodness. And you say, oh my, it's just absolutely phenomenal what God is able to do. Every relationship is open. Every relationship is there for everybody else to see. You know, just heaven just keeps ramping it up to a, another level. Now, let me, uh, by the way, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I'll leave you hanging. Let me say it. Uh, as the bride of Christ, a wedding dress on earth. Should say, as a bride of a human being, a wedding dress on earth is beautiful, but compared to heaven, it's an oil rag. I mean, that's how unbelievably great it's going to be. You know, John is using language that we really can't quite comprehend, and that he can't he can't get at where he's going. But we understand that it's infinitely above, beyond what we could ask or think. So let me offer a couple of uh, concluding reminders today. First of all, the hope of heaven is the basis of living faithfully now. If you need a motivation for doing what's right, think about heaven itself. You know, Jesus gave this truth to the disciples in the city of Jerusalem on the evening of his arrest and and just before his trial and crucifixion the next day. Uh, And the disciples were really looking down the gun barrel at three troubling issues during that time there in the upper room there in Jerusalem. First, they had to deal with the prospects of a broken relationship with the Lord. He was leaving them. And he had been their entire life for the last three years. And now he informs them that he is going to suffer a horrific death. And their sense of loss, as Jesus was talking, was absolutely excruciating. And second, the disciples were also facing a very clouded future. You know, they were continually looking for that political king that would kind of come in and uh, deliver them from the boot of Rome and so that uh, they could establish their own kingdom uh, you know, here in Israel, you know, that it would be delivered from, from Roman oppression, if you please. Now they learn that the kingdom is going to be spiritual and that Jesus was going to a cross. And they were perplexed. And there, there was a lot of uncertainty and vagueness about what the future held. And they could see no path. They could find no direction. And the third thing about the disciples during this thing, is that 
the disciples were confronted with the reality of their own failure. I mean, Jesus told the 12 men that were sitting with them in the upper room that uh, one of them would betray him, that one would, uh, that the rest would desert him, and that their great champion, Peter, would deny him. So they were looking down the gun barrel of a broken relationship, a personal failure, and a clouded future, and it all happened. Their worst fears came true. Now, in verse 1, Jesus says, don't let your heart be troubled. Listen and believe what I say about the future. Now, from the time the disciples headed out into the darkness of the night to the end of their lives, the truth about heaven itself was a source of strength and courage to them. That's why they didn't defect save Judas. Now, we all know about the pain of a broken relationship, uh, the vagueness of a clouded future, and the reality of personal failure. But the prospect of a future home with Christ and with one another can anchor our souls during those unsteady times that we encounter in the course of our of our walk through this world. You know, there's a slogan Let me give you the second thing. The hope of heaven is our basis for loving sacrificially. And there's a saying that says, he's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You heard that before? He, she is so heavenly minded that she is no earthly good. Uh, Let me respond to that a little bit here. Because it's a statement that uh, Christians that consider heaven really don't care that much about the earth. Uh, Two thoughts about that. First of all, the statement is philosophically untenable. You know, because Nietzsche, Sartre, Camus, just a sampling of modern thinkers that have rightly said that if there is no God on this earth, and they were atheists, if there is no God, then life has no meaning, no dignity, and no value. If this world is nothing but a blip, I mean, Ayn Rand's doctrine of enlightened self-interest is absolutely spot on. On the other hand, you know, when you read history, you discover that it's the heavenly-minded community that has done the most for our present world. And I couldn't say something more emphatically. It's the believing community that does more for this world than the unbelieving community. I mean, it's dedicated Christians are the ones that are digging wells in Rwanda. They're renovating villages and schools and hospitals in Malawi. I've witnessed it. Uh, They rescue prostitutes from India. They take Christmas gifts, if you please, to Mexicali. 
they, they help buy buses so students can get to school in Honduras. You know, it's the believing community that really attacks racism, that attacks oppression. And wherever the gospel has gone, schools have been built, orphanages have been established, and hospitals have been constructed. Why is that? Well, it's because we know that people are eternal, and we know that they matter to Jesus Christ. And we know that every cup of water that we give will never, ever, ever be in vain. So what we have is the privilege of engaging as followers of Jesus Christ is simply living for the king of this world. And all of the troubling events that we encounter, all of the frustrations that we encounter, all the immaturity that we encounter, and sometimes the immaturity that other friends encounter in us, all of that will not rob us of the realization that we as followers of Christ are part of a larger story. And it's a story that ends in life, not death. It ends in joy and not sorrow. And all of the things that happen along the way, it's not going to change the full reality someday in glory when we have the privilege of being in the presence of Christ and with one another. And uh, it'll be cool, really cool. Now, would you stand with me? I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Now, we're going to make the high school group, junior high, feel pretty jealous when we're moseying around and having a good time in here. Our Father, we thank you uh, for the privilege of understanding uh, and being reminded of the plan that you have for us as uh, people. And Lord, uh, it's the beauty of what lies ahead uh, that uh, keeps us, helps keep our, our chin up and our optimism and helps us be generous and giving and kind and slow down and concentrate on people. It's, it's the realization is that that's what you were, Father. And we thank you for the gospel of Christ uh, that, that we can bring that uh, will liberate individuals from the bondage that they've experienced in so many ways. Father, you're still doing miracles even this day. And if somehow you can continue to use uh, us in that fashion, Lord, let us be able. Let us be sacrificial. Let us be kind. Let us be giving. Let us be good listeners. We thank you. Just uh, thank you and love you. And uh, pray that this Lord's Day, that uh, you will be able to smile in all parts of the world because people are gathered in all parts of the world uh, wanting to uh, share their love and affection for what you've done. Uh, we can't uh, begin to comprehend it now, but someday in heaven we'll have better knowledge. But even then, uh, we're going to not be able to realize it all. We just trust that, Father, you'll smile at the depth of what we do know. In Christ's name, amen.